Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop event podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. On Wednesday, November 6, 2019, Julia Alvarez joined Kali Fajardo Anstein for Inside the Writers Studio, co-presented by the Newman Center in NEA Big Read. The Writers Studio is one of Denver's signature reading series, bringing rising and nationally recognized authors to town for discussions, readings, book signings, and workshops. Julia Alvarez is the author of numerous novels, including In the Time of the Butterflies, collections of poems, nonfiction books, and numerous books for young readers. A recipient of the 2013 National Medal of Arts, Alvarez is one of the founders of Border of Lights, a movement to promote peace and collaboration between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. She lives in Vermont. Afterlife, a new novel, will be published in 2020. Good evening, how is everyone? Yeah, it's beautiful uh, to be here. I'm, I'm humbled and honored to share the stage with these giants. Um, I have been thinking about justice uh, and freedom and liberation a lot lately. Uh, what those words mean, who those things are for, how they show up in society, in, in literature, in our hearts how we get there, uh, wondering if those things are a destination uh, or a process or just some imaginary idea. I'm not sure. And like most of you, there's days that I'm optimistic and others that I'm skeptical. Um, But there are sweet bells of justice ringing righteously in the distance. From where we stand, The sound is faint, but unmistakably beautiful. From where we stand, faith convinces us to listen to what we hunger to one day see. These recondite sounds, majestic as the Quetzal's coup. These recondite sounds, soothing as the lullaby the sunset sings as it slow dances across the horizon. And we, we run with hope and abandon in the direction of the chimes. Traverse an American landscape that has made winners of some and bullseyes of others. Traverse an American landscape that has been stolen, enslaved, and interred with bones and blood. Even still, we run feverishly toward the bells because on good days, we know the ideals that live where the music is promise equality promise prosperity, promise liberty and justice for all. Our corazones are compasses that point in the direction of freedom. Our hands, shovels unafraid to dig into the dirt. Our voices, keys we use to open doors not meant for us to walk through. Our minds, luscious playgrounds where dreams and better tomorrows marry in the chapel of perseverance. For in the distance, maybe just outside our reach, balanced scales be seeks to be seen. In the distance, the sword Lady Justice wields in her right hand is not slashing disproportionately. In the distance, her blindfold has not yet slipped from her eyes. Beneficent is the red road we have traveled. Dignified, the path we have carved with promise. We are the fruit our ancestral raices dreamed into existence. Flowers cultivated in the garden of hard work and sweat. Courageous is the one who speaks the truth boldly, even if mariposas pinball inside their belly. 
The one who swims against an ominous current when the waves are unjust. Over a lifetime, the human heart beats more than two billion times without stopping. This means, mi gente, that we have two billion reasons to stretch our wings, to fly in the face of adversity, to dance amid the smoke, to love through all the hate. May boundaries be nothing more than invitations for exploration, a starting line from which we sprint in the direction of the uncharted, a catapult that launches us in the direction of the fruition of our dreams. May justice prevail. May it be not a fleeting illusion only pursued, but a beacon of virtue we attain tirelessly and justly together for in the distance las campanas are still ringing promise is calling and we will not stop running until we all arrive until we all are free thank you thank you and now it is my distinct honor to introduce Kali Fajardo Anstein, the author of Sabrina and Karina, a finalist for the National Book Award in Fiction. Give it up for that. Woo! Hi, everyone. Uh, this is so, so exciting. Uh, I am, I'm deeply honored. I'm gonna save a lot of that for the conversation, but I thought I would read a little bit from my short story, Tomi, um, and, then I'll, and then I'll go sit down and we'll hear, we'll hear from Julia. When my nephew Tomi was a baby, I stole the thousand dollars that his mother Natalie kept in the closet. It was for his college fund. She had placed the money in a rinsed-out mason jar, wrapped in a knockoff Fendi scarf, and hidden beneath a pile of bald socks. Hungover and dazed, I crept across their carpeted floor, taking the jar and spending everything on liquor and clothes within a week. My brother Manny said I would never do something like that, though his ex-wife Natalie always suspected it was me. Who, he demanded to know, would steal from their own blood? Six years later, I stole a 94 Honda Civic and I drove head-on into an elderly couple's picture window at four in the morning. It was in the northern suburbs of Denver. Every house and driveway looked like a white gravel road. An old man, he wore striped pajamas as he dusted shattered windshield glass from my face. Blood flooded my mouth. A tooth dragged down my throat. The old man, he placed a towel on my lips and he told his wife to call an ambulance. When he leaned back through the car door, his pajama arm resting on the steering wheel, he looked at me and said, Look at you, Hita. You're just a baby. I served my time at La Vista Correctional Facility in Pueblo, Colorado. My family did not call much and they never visited. I marked the days on two calendars, the first filled with illustrations of wildflowers and the second with photos of horses and empty, rustic fields. Toward the end of the horses, my attorney called to say that I was up for early release, so long as I had a place to live and that I got a job. 
I planned on moving into a halfway house off Colfax when Manny called to say that I could live with him and told me. Won't Natalie be pissed? I asked Manny over the phone. She's gone, he said. She left me. I told him that I was sorry, even though I had seen it coming from the beginning. At 17, Natalie moved into our parents' home with only a snap closed suitcase, two Navajo blankets, and a belly filled with Tomi. Why are you doing this? I asked Manny before hanging up. You're my sister, Cole, my blood. But please, don't fuck up this time. When he was 21 and I was 15, Manny inherited our family home after our father died of a heart attack while shampooing his hair. Our mother was already long dead. When I was very little, she swallowed an entire bottle of painkillers. At La Vista, I read in an anatomy book that the heart has no nerve endings. And for a little while, I believed that my parents died without any pain. We lived on Denver's north side, in the shadow of Mile High Stadium, a neighborhood that was now called Highlands, though only white people said that. <laughs> Our house was a slender brick square that rested on a high plot, giving it the illusion of something great, among knifing condos and black BMWs. The gentrification reminded me of tornadoes, demolishing one block while casually leaving another intact. Our block was unrecognizable. I was released from La Vista early on a Tuesday morning in late autumn. Manny met me outside in his white Tacoma that reeked of corn chips and coffee. He wore his canvas car heart, his dark hair newly streaked white. Look at you, he said, pinching my cheeks. Someone called Jenny Craig. Yeah, I said, prison don't have no Bud Light. Damn shame, he said. I'll get you some chicharrones for the road. He turned up the radio on a Neil Young song and he beat out the chorus on the steering wheel. A red rosary dangled snake-like from the rearview mirror. And taped to the dash were Virgen de Guadalupe prayer cards and a Sears baby picture of Tommy. How is he? I asked, brushing the photo with my hand, since Natalie's been gone. I don't know, he said. He's sad. Manny pinched tobacco into his left cheek. He's failing a class called Read and Relax. You tell me how a person fails to read and relax. We drove by a yellow traffic sign, bullet-holed and bent, warning against picking up hitchhikers when near a correctional facility. The sky beyond was larger than I'd ever seen, an oily gray, an arrowhead of birds. Impressive, I said. Thank you so much. And... <laughs> Thank you, Kali. I'm having a hard time believing that I'm on stage with you right now. <laughs> um, 
I, I want to begin this conversation by, well, I've already thanked you for my blur because that was the very first thing I ever said to you when I met you last spring. I, I just said, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Um, but I, I want to tell you how important you've been to me personally as a writer and also to my entire family of six girls and one boy, and I think a lot of them are here tonight in different areas. <laughs> um, but when I was growing up, my mother took me to see you. You came to a bookstore in Denver. It was called Cultural Legacy. And she interviewed you for La Voz, which was the wow. Latino newspaper. And I just remember being like, oh my gosh, I can be a writer someday. And then the entire family reread In the Time of the Butterflies. Mm. And my mom is somebody like me who reads books over and over and over again. Mm. So your, your novel really became like central to the way that we saw ourselves in books. Wow. And then the movie came out with Selma Hayek, and then we would share popcorn, and we watched together. <laughs> um, so I just, I just, I want to begin by saying thank you so much for what you have given Latinas like me to be able to imagine ourselves into this mm. position as a writer. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you. Well, it does, I, um, it, it's sweet to get to be an older writer and to feel like, no, it's true to feel like, um, you know, that what you've done I love the Toni Morrison quote, the function of freedom is to free someone else, and that it's spread, and that because of your work, other people's work is getting done or was done. But you know, it feels bogus for me to accept all this gratitude, because I got to be doing the thing that I feel like I was put on this earth to do, and I got to do it. What greater blessing or privilege than to get to do that? So to be thanked for that feels like, hey, wait a minute, you know, <laughs> I'm the grateful one that, that it's been possible to be a, a writer. Well, we, I think all of us here tonight in this giant Denver book club, we are very, we are very grateful to you for yeah. putting your work in the world. And I think one of my, my first questions for you is, how did, how did this start? Where, where did this come from that you knew becoming a writer was what was going to happen in your life and what you wanted to strive for? I had no idea. You have no idea? <laughs> no, no. I started out, um, up, up, I'm a real, uh, kids love to hear the story. I am not the poster child for becoming a writer. I flunked every grade through fifth grade. I was a problem kid. I was so bored in school. It was a dictatorship school. Yeah. I hated books. They were textbooks. They were dry. I wasn't in them. Mm -hmm. The stories didn't relate. So I was really bored. Yeah. And the teachers, there were all these complaints, Julia does not pay attention. I would get home and my tia or my abuelita would say, ven acá, déjame contarte un cuento. Let me tell you a story. And I was there. Did I pay attention? I love stories. <laughs> so I think I did have the love of story, but it was oral culture, oral storytelling. But what made me into a writer was the disruption of leaving the Dominican Republic as an immigrant kid, coming to Nueva York, experiencing a lot of rejection, yeah. and having to go internal, mm -hmm. and having a great sixth grade teacher who put books in my hands, and sort of convinced me that inside the books I would find my tias and my abuelitas and great stories. I just had to pick the right ones. Yeah. And so once you become a reader, you realize after a while that there's one story you haven't read. Yeah. 
the one only you can tell. Mm -hmm. Once you join that big circle and you want to be part of it, well, you know, you know, and so you take your turn. Um, and sometimes the culture that we're in says, oh, you're not one of our, you're not one of our credential storytellers or your stories are sociology, yeah. they're not really American literature. But through persistence, and people that went before us, mm -hmm. and people that come after, the circle can get wider. Lighted. Yeah. That's really beautiful, and I think it, it mirrors a lot of what I experienced, too. It, like, in the home, the stories were enormous, you yeah. know? And I, I just remember, I came from people who I'm not sure could read, and some of the elders in my family, but they could tell a story. Yes. And, you know, like, um, so one of the things I am I'm very fascinated about with your work, um, you've, you've written so many books and so many different genres and novels, books for children, um, mm. YA, poetry. Um, when you, when you, you find the story that you want to tell, how do you know what kind of book it is? How do you know what sort of story it's going to be? You don't. You don't? It's I, I'm, like, I'm, like, I'm like, oh my gosh, it's always going to be a mystery. <laughs> no, it's, it's going to be, it's the two M's. It's going to be a mystery and it's going to be messy. Uh, yeah. I, thought, <laughs> I used to think real writers, you know, start at the beginning and went through and then they made a few changes here and there. And so I thought like I was not a real writer because it was so messy and I try something and it doesn't work. I try it again and, you know, it's just... The 99%, you know, 1% talent, 99% apply in the seat of the pants to the seat of the chair. You just keep trying and you work it. So I think a lot of it is, is messy. And in terms of the different genres or who I write, I think that's stories finding me. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't write in the abstract from an idea, but more a situation I find myself in. Yeah. And it's sort of like, we need a story to understand what's happening to us in this situation or that situation. So with the children's books, it was the, a project my husband and I started in the DR, a literacy project. And I saw that all these books that my publishers were donating in Spanish, they didn't relate to the stories in the community. Wow. So I said, well, you know, how about I try to write some stories about the Ciguapas, about La Vieja Belén, about La Virgencita, La Altagracia, you know, the things that they, so that, you know, it comes, the stories knock on my door. Mm. I try not to answer. I tell them <laughs> to go away because a lot of them are just soliciting. Yeah. And if someone else, I know, will, I know, yeah. If someone else <laughs> will open their door, let them have it. Yeah. You know? okay. But the one that will sit parked there, and I call it the pebble in my shoe. I try to shake it out. It stays there. That's the one that I have to end up writing. So it's, but it's messy. Yeah. And I'm reluctant because it's hard, you know. It's a labor. Yeah. It really is. You know, when we're up here, we look like we're famous. <laughs> Forget <laughs> it. This is not the writing life, you no. know. It's like. <laughs> yeah, know. they should see us when we're writing. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. There probably no. is a YouTube. You're probably a YouTube channel. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of a funny cast, maybe they should have funny writers oh, writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, just like record us writing yeah. and bathe without our yeah. toothbrush. Yeah. It's really fun. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. you mentioned this idea of the pebble in your shoe, the yeah. idea that won't go away. Uh, so I want to know where the pebble in the shoe first came or appeared to you for in the time of the butterflies. 
Well, you know, um, it, it was an eerie situation. My father was in the underground, the same underground the girls had started, but in a different cell in the Capitol. And we left, and we're four sisters. Yeah. So after we got to the United States, they were three months later, they were murdered. And that's when Papi first started to tell us the story, and it haunted me yeah. because those were the sisters that didn't make it. They were a little older than us. And then when I would go to, started taking history classes and Latin American history, nobody had ever heard about the Mirabar sisters. And so I just felt like it was almost like a, a debt. And then to find out, at first I just thought it was three sisters that hadn't made it. And when I went back to do all the research, I found out that there was the fourth sister who survived. Deve. Yeah. And it gets even more eerie. Deve mm. is the second of the four sisters who's the storyteller who survived. Are you the second? And I'm the second. Oh my gosh! Like, oh my gosh! You know, Chills. The, yeah, yeah. The, the green lights of the muses, you know. Hey, this is... Wow. You, so I just felt more and more compelled. But it was very much, you know, the dead. And it, it sounds too cerebral, but you carry this... Um, survivors, you know, we talk about survivor's guilt, but there's, there's the survivors, the debt also, of, and all you can do is tell the story yeah. so that people remember, yeah. you know? And so it, it really came out of that connection that was old. I mean, people say, how long did it take you to write the novel? Didn't get published till I was 44, yeah. but I was writing it since I heard the story in my head, yeah. asking, Bueno, papi, well, what about them, and why did it happen? And he got involved in finding things out for me, too, from the people he knew that knew them more closely than he had. Wow. So that makes me you know, think about the rich characterization of these sisters. Um, when I think about your style, your style is so character-driven, and I love that because it's, uh, I can embody these characters in my mind, and then suddenly their, their cadence and the details that they notice. And I love how all the sisters, their different perspectives come out in different ways. Yeah. Like Matei, she writes in her little yeah. book. Yeah. <laughs> like she's a writer. Yeah. Um, but I was wondering, I do a lot of research for my work that, you know, I'm just talking to a lot of people a lot of time, a lot of elders, and because a lot of our, our information is not recorded in archives, yes. it's not in libraries. So I wanted to know what kind of research went into in the time of the butterflies. Well, I was mentioning that, you know, part of it was going there because there was nothing written about them. Yeah. Nothing had been written. The only thing there was, I don't know if, if this exists um, in your culture, um, that there were these little novelas, and they're like, um, they're like graphic novels, but they're with photographs, mm -hmm. you know, and they have actors pose and little bubbles above their head. And there was the story of La Mariposas, and it was, oh, a, wow. it was like a comic book, uh, not it wouldn't, a graphic yeah. book. And that was the only thing I could find, except, you know, in uh, uh, history books, the mention of them. But I needed, I needed more. And originally I set out to write a biography. Fascinating. Because there was nothing written about them. But then I became interested in their characters. And fiction is the truth according to character. Oh, it's yeah. like when you're not, it's not the recorded facts, but how the people inside that history experience it. And that's character driven, yeah. you know? And it's actually the way we experience history as we live it. Yeah. 
because we're a character living in a certain time, certain perspective, certain orientation, certain setting, all of that is the elements of fiction, of a fictional work. So that's when I became interested in their characters and I realized that it would be a novel and then how to tell it. But going back, meeting the they, mm -hmm. and seriously, she just took me in the house wow. and it became mi casa tu casa. Aww. And it wasn't a museo yet. Okay. So she was pulling things out and albums and I mira, this is what Patria was wearing when she died and oh, that's, I never have washed it. That's why there's a stain on the lap, that's her blood. And yeah. here's Mate's trenza, her braid. And here, do you want to touch it? You know, I mean, that's just incredible visceral. And then yeah. interviewing people, you know, that have been connected with them in the underground. And everything from the priest to someone who made their dresses, like you say, wow. because you get it. Yeah. You get it from everywhere, you know, every part of their lives. And that's the kind of, re you just made me realize that, thank you. That's the kind of research many of us from non-recorded yeah. histories that didn't make it into the history books that we have to do. And yeah. why our viejitos are so important, uh, because they're carrying that library in their head. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I think about... The day is that she's such a powerful character and she has the burden of telling the story, but if she didn't have that, we wouldn't have the story. Uh, did any of the sisters' voices give you more trouble than the other or overwhelm you when you were writing? Because I know some of my characters will not leave me alone. So. Yeah. <laughs> what do you mean by that? Well, sometimes, so in a few of my stories, some of the characters became so overwhelming. Um, for example, in the, the last story in the collection, Ghost Sickness, the girl yeah. whose, whose boyfriend has disappeared, you know, I would take a shower and I was still caught in her thought patterns. Yes. You know, the way that she thinks and yeah, the way that yeah, her, yeah, yeah. her language is and how she visualizes things, and I was like, get away from me, I'm done, I left the desk. So I was after, wondering... After it was done? Yeah, well, no, while I was working on what? her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I was wondering, did any of the sisters kind of... All of them. All of them. All of them, but I, but I, thought, <laughs> but I thought the easiest one turned out to be the hardest. Who? Well, my favorite, everybody's just Minerva! Minerva, I love her! <laughs> and she was, I thought, and she was the hardest because she was so political. Yeah. And she was so, um, you know, um, such a fierce activist. But she was a woman, too. Mm -hmm. And part of the research was finding out about the tenderness and the problems and the breakdowns and the, ha, ah, so what's going on? Yeah. And as her character, I have to get that all in mm. or she's flat. Yeah. And that was hard. I thought the hardest, do we want to take bets? Yeah. <laughs> was, going to be, was going to be Patria. Really? The really religious one. Oh, please. Yeah, I was like. <laughs> Don't tell me that God. No, 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 no. You know? I, and, and so I thought that's going to be the hardest. And she was the easiest. Really? But talking about the possession, I had to, when each chapter was done, I would pick up and then would begin the other voice. And I had to get in a totally different state of mind. Mm. It was a kind of, we have in Santeria, uno, uno se, you get mounted by the spirit okay. of that sister. Well, I mean, that's the way I felt, you know, yeah. total. And so with Patria, I had music I would play, organ yeah. music, mm -hmm. so that I could get the cadences 
and the and the tonality of her voice and character in there, you know. And with Mate, I read tons of diaries. Oh, they're so... I you know, <laughs> from the Anne Frank to diaries that kids kept in concentration camps. Yeah. So, because I, she was the young voice. Mm -hmm. And I'd have to think, what is the form that will convey her youth? Yeah. So I had to think of the structure of each novel. What would embody that? And, and diaries are very... There's something very youthful about mm -hmm. them, you know? And so hers was going to be that. So, but at the end, I, they would possess me, and then I would get possessed by another, and then it was done, or so they said. <laughs> so what I did, I had little altares. See, this is part of our Latino yeah. culture, yeah. right? I, little altares. So everything got bundled up, and I went back to their home. Wow. And I... Buried it under the oh. laurel tree. I, I needed that ritual yeah. of, you know, and so it, it wasn't that it, they totally disappeared, but rituals help us acknowledge, you know, all the influences and honor them and put them to rest wow. so that you can be ready for the next. Oh my gosh, I need to put Sabrina and Karina in the ground real quick no, so I can write the no, next one. No, <laughs> not them. <laughs> uh, or any kind of ritual where you give thanks to your characters yeah. and uh, the stories they came to tell you. And, uh, and you say, you know, maybe they will come back in yeah. another form, you know, but thank you for this. You yeah, know? I love it. No, I love that because my characters really overwhelm me. Yeah. So to be able to ask you about that, because some writers develop character, and I don't, de they just overwhelm me, yeah. and I am them, and they are me, and they're all inside I of me. I just think, you know, I think we use different vocabularies for it, and when we sort of um, make it antiseptic and controllable, we might call it developed characters. But my, my, my students that even don't talk this way, uh -huh. they get, they get in, they get absorbed and yeah, they're thinking about their characters 24-7, yeah. even when they're not writing. Yeah, yeah. I have one question about Minerva, because when I was rereading the book this time, I was like, yes, I love her, I identify with her, but I also... And you remind you. me of Minerva. <laughs> if, I were gonna, if I were going to do the movie, <laughs> here's my Minerva. That's right. <laughs> Um, I, well, I identified with her, like, when she catches her, you know, Papa cheating, and she drives the car into his car, and he comes out, and she's laying on the horn. I was like, oh, you are wild. And when she slaps Trujillo. Oh, wow. So yeah. when she slaps Trujillo, I have a couple questions about that. One, um, did it really happen? Well, <laughs> it's, it's an interesting question, because there's even a merengue oh, in the wow. DR that is about the slap oh, wow. uh, that the Minerva gave Trujillo. So here's the thing. There were people at that gathering who saw the slap. Okay. And this is the thing that I, when you interview, you feel like you realize how truth is so multifaceted. And what I love about a story is that it can hold all of it. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just one. So when I was interviewing people that were there, I used you know, it was a show. And then the day who was there said, Julia, te pido excusa, pero yo no vi esa, yo no vi eso. Ella sí lo empujó, pero una galleta, a slap, that didn't happen. So I had to, in all these instances, as the writer, I'm pulling it all in, and then given the character, I have to 
go with one way or another, but make it nuanced enough. But yes, she was, she was, she stood up to him. And, yeah. I, and ever since that moment, you know, he was out to get her wow. because it had been, you know, he had droit de seigneur. He could have any woman, yeah. anybody, nobody dared oppose him. And here was a woman herself yeah. saying, no, yeah. That's one of the things that I really appreciate about all of your work is how much, I mean, people ask me this about my work, like, why do you write about women? Like, <laughs> I'm a woman. Yeah. Um, but how much you focus on our subjectivity. And when I was rereading the novel this time around, I was like, oh, I identify with so much of this, you know, the, the longing and the coming of age and, you know, girls masturbate too, and it's all in there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's in your yeah. book. And I went back and I read a New York Times review that came out in 94, 95, when the book came out. And um, this reviewer said these very nasty things about how the book was cluttered with misfortune, rape, miscarriages, breast cancer, harassment, violence. And I thought, welcome to being a woman. Welcome to being a woman, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, when I read the review, I didn't feel that way. I felt <laughs> crushed. You know, I didn't. Yeah. Here was the big New York Times, the big, uh, you know, decider of what's literature and what's not. And we have been, you know, uh, uh, it, it, uh, the, the Langston Hughes poem, I Too Sing America, where he and others are put in the kitchen of minor writers and the yeah, big literary yeah. I felt like I finally gotten maybe to come into the big room. Yeah. The New York Times was going to review my book and then this reviewer was just, whoa, it took my breath away and I felt like I was being sent back into the kitchen. I was just, you know, had a hard time. Had a hard time with Garcia Girls. They yeah. came out and I had heavy duty family fallout of being shunned and yeah. it just you know it was so hard uh, as a woman to have a voice and then have the old paradigms where having a voice um, was transgressive yeah but I didn't know you know there weren't there was no one ahead of me you know it was like my compañeras Sandra Cisneros Ana Castillo we were on it in it together and we have been you know sort of regional small publishers, mm -hmm. we knew about each other, but suddenly we, you know, we're sort of in there and... I have something to tell yeah. you. So you were in Vanity Fair with Lost Girlfriends. Friends. That was another <laughs> yeah. big break, yeah. Yeah, and this was, you know, this was around that time period and I special ordered it and I like keep it and I like look at it every once in a while. I'm like, oh, this is so awesome. But I want to know what it was like to debut at this time where there really wasn't very much work being published at all by women of color, especially by Latinas. What was the, the literary culture and climate like at this time? And how, I mean, how did you find the strength and the bravery to just keep pushing and making it so the aisle was wider so voices like mine can come mm. to the, the table yeah. now? Well, we had each other, okay. a kind of sisterhood, you know, las girlfriends, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. We had those that came before, they gave us courage. We had Maxine Hong Kingston. The woman warrior yes and reading her was deciding oh we're not we too have you know these stories these amazing stories and I think it's you know the courage 
I think the courage ultimately also comes um, from readers, people that if you come get through and tell you something as you have given me a great gift, you know, it, it just says it, it has been meaningful to others, but also it's the work itself. Yeah. It's, it's the doing and the making and the storytelling and, and the knowing that something about stories we're encoding in it important information that we mustn't forget to take care of each other. Yeah. You know, and, and to know that you're about that work. To me, it's, it's not to overinflate it, but it's holy work. It, yeah. it's, it's, and it's a, a great responsibility. And sure, this is nice. Um, and y you have to be careful, though, that it doesn't throw you off from what the real work is, yeah. you know, which is, which is the getting up and the labor and the messiness and the, the story parked at the door that is just going to stay there till you, <laughs> till you let it in. You know, it, yeah. it, and it, it is about that work. Um, and the other stuff is affirming and it connects us and it's important, but it's, I think that's how you get it. Yeah. yeah. That's really beautiful and it's really helpful for me to hear that. Um, I think Joyce has that quote, like literature is in essence God, you know, yeah. and I think, oh, I who think does, that, no, I, I, it was a Paris Review interview with another author who quoted Joyce, but I couldn't find the original oh. quote. <laughs> Say it again. Literature is in essence God. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I feel that I, this is to me is a holy act too. This yes. is something that is so deeply meditative and so deeply spiritual and it connects me to my ancestors from the past and it also connects me to the family members that are coming that I don't know about. Yeah. And to my, you know, this wide world of readers. So, well, you know, there, really there's, beautiful. I don't know, I, I read this about um, native healers, mm -hmm. um, that there's three questions the medicine man asks. Um, when was the, when was, um, when was the last time you laughed? Aww. When was the last time you danced? When was the last time you told someone a story? Oh. There is something healing yeah. about and, and connective and, you know, that keeps us alive, keeps the important stuff alive in us through storytelling. And we, we get to do that, you yeah. know? I mean, that's... Amazing. That, I can't believe it. Uh, yeah. I, I still, I, I mean, it's been a whole eight months. I cannot I, believe it. Yeah, you know? yeah. But for you, someone who's been doing this for decades, I mean, what does it feel like to see your books going out and see In the Time of the Butterflies in its 25th year resonating with readers all over the world? It's a, it's a, it's a you know, such gratitude yeah. that, you know, that a book has been alive for that long, you know, the, I say books are like, yeah. you know, a year in, in the life of a book is like what they say about dogs, it's seven human, <laughs> or we're seven human ones yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, a book, we're such a disposable culture, they, mm -hmm. you know, they last a season, and maybe you're, after a while, they get remaindered, or, you know, yeah. it's, so for it to be alive, it's very gratifying, but it's also, you know, as you move through your writing life, now I'm at an older stage. As a, I'm an elder. Nobody's going to give me that title, but that's, I'm an elder in storytelling. So the question I ask myself is, what are the stories that I need to tell before I go so that when death has me and rings me, there isn't a <laughs> drop there. I don't want ah. a drop there. You know, 
and, and what is the use of my time yeah. and how to encourage the young ones coming, you know, um, you, even the younger ones, you know, what, what is it, how can we help them going forward to stay strong and to be brave and to tell their stories? Yeah. And so it's a question that you don't ask at the beginning because you're getting launched and you're wanting to, but then, you know, when you look back and you see the trail, so what is, what is the, you know, and it's also time sometimes to say it's, you know, it's okay to also shut up. Yeah. You know, and, and listen, because someone sat in my first row and listened, yeah. you know, so to encourage and be, uh, you know, a, a listening ear for yeah. younger writers and activists. Activism now is... Well, I want to I ask you about that, because in the author's note to the 25th anniversary edition, you begin by saying you believe that stories have the power to change the world. I do. And I love that, and I believe that, but I want to hear why you think that is. Well, when I said that I didn't ever, I wouldn't go near a book until we came to this country, I lied. There's one book that my tia titi gave me that I was absorbed with, but it wasn't a school book. Yeah. It was The Arabian Nights. And it was the story about this young woman, young mm -hmm. girl, who didn't, wasn't white, blonde, blue-eyed princess. She was Arab, so she looked Dominican. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and she goes to the sultan's court, and she tells the story. Next morning, she's going to be beheaded. Every woman in the kingdom is getting killed. And so she starts the story, and she lived, leaves that at a cliffhanging point when the sun comes up. So she says, it's my time to die. And the sultan says, no, you get spared one night till you finish that story. Oh my gosh. She finishes the story, starts a new one, same strategy, <laughs> a thousand and one nights. And by the end of that time, she's changed the sultan because of the power of her stories. Wow. She saved all the women in the kingdom. Wow. She saved herself. I may... I read that as a kid. I'm not analyzing it this way, but it gets into the bloodstream of my imagination. Mm. Stories of power. Yeah. They can change people. So, you're probably being given a signal. Yeah, I am. But I want to tell you one last thing yes. that, I've, that we are getting launched, um, this new movement. Um, it's going to be called The 101 Nights. And I found at one of these readings a woman in D.C., who has agreed to do the organizing, and it's called the Shahrazad Project. The oh. name of the woman is the Shahrazad. For 1,001 nights, starting July 25th, before Election Day, 101 nights, one storyteller, dancer, musician, female, will stand in front of the White House wow. for five, 10 minutes and tell a story, dance a dance, play a piece, and then pack up her stuff and leave. Wow! Oh my God! So, once it goes live, we're calling on you. You're going to be one of the one, 101 nights. Hey, okay. So get ready. And are we going to change Sultan Trump's mind? I don't care. But we're, we're going to be connecting, and we're going to be creating community and power and, you know, maybe that woman that is in the White House with him and never blinks 
Maybe she's never told a story. Maybe she'll join us. Yeah, maybe. I bet she's got some stories. <laughs> no, this is fascinating. I can't wait. The Shahrazad Project. The Shahrazad Project? Yep. Oh my gosh, yep. I love it. Yes. So see, stories okay, of power. I, okay. Yeah, call and me we're going to win I'll... the election. <laughs> okay. I, and, can, I can make yeah. a visit. I yeah. can definitely do that. Yeah. yeah. We'll get to a reading of Politics and Prose yeah, for your book. Yeah, they haven't invited me yet. Yes, yeah, there you go. Okay. And then at night, it's only 15 minutes. Come yeah, on. I would love to I 10, would love 15 to minutes, yeah. even shorter than tonight if you want to. Yeah. <laughs> well, you, you call me up and we'll, we'll figure it out. Yep, yeah. yep. Keep me safe. Um, okay, so we have some butterfly questions from the audience and they're all, they're so beautiful. They're all different colors. Yeah. Um, so this one is for both of us, or either or, but I'm going to ask you. Um, no, it's your turn. What, what does... I talked about listening. It's your but turn. I want to know. I, I'm learning so much. Though. And so am I. This is so exciting. Um, what does your editing process look like? Do you remove and replace entire passages, etc.? cetera? Um, yeah, okay. So I can talk about this a little bit. When I was a younger writer, my work was so precious to me. I didn't think I'd have the energy to create worlds again and character and all that. And then I would turn in, when I finally got to an MFA program, and I, I was a notoriously bad student. I actually dropped out of high school, and I dropped out of my first MFA program. So I'm like, I'm with you in that. But when I finally got to the MFA program that I stuck it out in, and I loved it, the University of Wyoming, I turned in a draft of my story, Any Further West, which is in Sabrina and Karina, and one of my mentors, the writer Radowit Lapsharovansop, he said, okay, this is a great start. You got, you got all these elements there, but now it's time to start over again. Uh -huh. And I said, what are you talking about? Like, this is the story. There's no starting over. And he said, have you ever revised? Uh -huh. And I said, no. What is that? And so that was like an eye-opening experience. So now when I edit, it's a lot of rewriting. And I actually will cut entire passages and throw them away, but I, I keep them around just in case I need them. Yeah. Uh, but I also will take a, you know, a problematic paragraph or something, and I pull it out by itself in its own mm. Word document. Do you do this? And just work it. Just yeah. work on yeah. that by yeah. itself, and then it goes back yeah. into its family. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Do you, how do you, I mean, what's your oh, editing I'm, process I'm like? I'm terrible. I'm an endless <laughs> reviser. Really? Oh, yeah. endless, endless. I mean... Sometimes people are following a passage in the book. <laughs> they keep looking up like, did I get the wrong copy? Because I've you're editing? I keep <laughs> editing even books that are published, yeah. you know, in my head. <laughs> I, you know, but I used to think, oh my gosh, you know, that's, gosh, you're so insecure. But I think it me measures that you are growing as a writer and you see things that you couldn't have seen back then. You yeah. wrote the best book. What you want to do is write the best book that you can write at that moment. Mm -hmm. And revising is part, sorry, it's It's, it's part of the labor. It's part of the labor. Yeah. And it's so necessary because I used to tell my students, revising is after you get those first drafts, reading your work as if someone else had written it. Yeah. So that you have, then you're an advocate for your reader. What is unclear? What is too slow? You know, you're putting it together that way. And it's generous to your readers, exactly. too, to not exactly. bore them. And I actually made things a little bit nicer in some of my stories that are so dark. Yeah. I didn't, yeah. <laughs> didn't want to hurt them anymore. OK. Um, this is for you. Are, are you the person? 
at the beginning of the book, in the novel, interviewing Dede. You know, I use whatever I need when I'm writing a story. <laughs> and part of it, I, I'm really not very interested in Julia Alvarez. Not, not really. But <laughs> I'm, I, I can create of that, of that person a voice yeah. that isn't really me. And that was, again, a fictional strategy. I thought with my readers, uh, the, back then, at any rate, um, I fa found North American readers very often resistance, resistant to the issues, histories, yeah. uh, whatever, traditions of the Southern Americas, yeah. of other countries, you know? And so this was a strategy of a, a person that is bicultural, bilingual, a way to enter the story of a foreign culture with having a guide through that labyrinth to begin with. Oh, wow. And then it takes off. But that was the strategy of why that character is there. So, you know, whatever works, mm -hmm. you, shouldn't, you shouldn't put yourself or anything in a, in a novel or in a story or in a poem unless it belongs in yeah, the, the dynamic. Yeah. yeah, it has to work in the, it has to be for the story. Okay. Not because you want to make a guest appearance. Yeah, like, Cameo, yeah. I'm yeah. here. <laughs> no, that, that makes sense. I no. actually, I started a short story, but then I was like, I have a novel that I'm working on, so I need to not yeah. work on the short story. But there was a character and she's a writer and her first book just came out and she's on book tour. And I was like, uh, this is me. Yeah. This is embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> No, but you will put, the character wants the story get the, the story will make demands on what that character needs to be that will cut the umbilicum cord and yeah. make it into its own character. So it's not you I know, should follow her. Yeah. Her she name's might. Ollie, not Kali. <laughs> Maybe change the name. Yeah. <laughs> I'll work on that. I'll work on that. Julia. How about Julia? Julia. Oh, okay, I love it. All right, so this is, a, this is one of those age-old amazing questions that we all, I'm very interested in knowing. What is your process? Do you have a schedule? You know, how do you, how do you make these words happen on the page? Okay, uh, I am, a, I am a, a person of ritual okay. and structure. I am, you know, um, I used to say, I, I, I'm a nun who has sex <laughs> about my work. That sounds like a good gig. <laughs> you know, I like the rituals. I like having a structure. And, you know, Flannery O'Connor said that um, the muse sometimes came, sometimes didn't. But she knew that between 9 and 12, Flannery O'Connor was going to be there. Show up. And show, yeah. you know. Um, so I believe in doing the work and in having the structure and in having writing a little every day. And the way I would tell my students, and you know, this is what works for me, is it's, it's a muscle. Yeah. Just writing is a muscle, keeping limber and keeping the language flowing. And if you were a dancer and you only dance when you felt like it, you're gonna pull a muscle if you yeah. don't do your bar exercises every day. So even if what you're writing is in a journal, if you don't have that structure that I have, um, because that might not work for you, to write a little every day, yeah. however you do it. Just I think little. that's important for me. What about 
you? Well, I had this whole structure and everything, and then my book was published, and then, then I yeah. became longlisted for the National Book Award, and then became a finalist for the National Book Award, and now I don't have any time to write, but I'm very scared about it. Yeah, um, yeah. So my, I'm very thankful that I had already turned in a draft of my next book. That's a great thing. And yeah. I have that to work on, and I had been working on it for many years. But before all this happened to me, and I'm hoping that I'll go through a cycle, you know, where the book gets its, its life. It does eat up time. Yeah, yeah, and then I get to kind of go back into the, the weirdness of being a writer. But before, the way that I was able to write the first book and now the second book, I would write a thousand words a day, no wow. matter how long it took me, but I would take yeah. the weekends off because I had to go out and party. But I, <laughs> I, I agree with that. Uh, I'm a nun that isn't a nun on the yeah, weekends. Yeah, exactly. I on, agree the weekends. <laughs> on the weekends. On the weekends. But sometimes those thousand words a day, they would take all day. And yeah. it's really aggravating, but it did get me to the point where I had a full draft of a novel. Wow. And the, the stories, though, were a little bit different where they're kind of, have you heard that saying, a, a novel is a marriage, a short story is a love affair? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. so I had like a ton of affairs for the first <laughs> book. <laughs> but yeah, so my process is evolving, so this is really helpful for me to yeah. hear from you. Yeah, you know, my agent who knows Margaret Atwood um, talked to her after, you know, all the big things happen and, uh, you know, she was yeah. movies and suddenly an icon and she talked to Susan and said, uh, oh boy, uh, tomorrow I start, I go back to the trenches and to that feeling of, I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah. And we're all equal. And, and Margaret Atwood, I yeah. mean, she doesn't know what she's doing. Yeah, I so, know. <laughs> so, you know, there is that blitz and the, but that, that's not why we came into this game. Yeah. You know, and we owe it to our, to our readers to get back to the writing. And even though this is exciting, and in this celebrity culture and accessibility culture, it's very hard to say, you know, I, so long, folks. I've got to get I've back to work. I've got to give you another book. I've got to get yeah. back to work. For your own sanity, Yeah, I mean, too. I feel, I am depressed when I can't ride. Yeah, I'm antsy. Yeah. I yell at my family who's here. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm a different person when I'm not writing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because it's how you make meaning and process experience. And when you're not doing that, it's like all this toughest. Yeah. You know, the garbage collectors are having a strike. It's all just piling up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, I gotta take out the garbage. Yeah. Um, I, have one, I have a final question for you. I, I never hear, you know, Susan Bergholz get mentioned very much in interviews or talks with her. I mean, I, I'm like a weirdo that reads everything that you've all written and you've said in interviews, but I, I'm really fascinated by Susan as a, a literary figure. So can you talk a little bit about what it was like to share an agent with Sandra Cisneros, Ana Castillo, and how she found you? And, well, a, a lot of it was word of mouth. I found Susan through Gloria Naylor, the wonderful African-American writer. Oh, that, wow. She's a wonderful writer. Um, passed away, I think it was last year. Really sad loss. Um, but she's the one that connected me with Susan. So it was all kind of word of mouth. Okay. And here was this small agent, you know, um, one person. Um, and she just was, she's a warrior woman. Yeah. You know, and she just kept, uh, she told me at one point, uh, you don't know how many rejections I got for how the Garcia girls lost their accents. I stopped telling you. She says it was over 13. Wow. It was just, but she just kept 
it, it's just she was creating, you know, kind of the ear yeah. in publishing houses for this, these new kinds of voices. And we're all really grateful to her for what she's done. You know, she's really, and, and she, yeah, I keep saying you need to, you need to write a memoir. She needs the book. Yeah. I wrote her in college as an undergrad because I was trying to get Sandra Cisneros to come to my school. Yeah. And I was like, I have no money. I'm just a child. Or, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Susan Burgos wrote me back. Yeah, she's, she, and yeah. It's amazing. It's incredible that I, I'm in awe of you, your agent, this whole trajectory, this whole, this whole world that you brought to literature. Thank you so much. Julia. Well, that, that's how it happens. We, you know, help each other. And, and so it becomes, the circle becomes wider. So it's important. And more and more voices can join. And more and more voices yes. can join. And 101 will join us. I, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys.